0: Discover more resources and continue the conversation at apologetics.org. And now, your host, the Research Professor of Bible and Theology at Trinity College of Florida, author and speaker, Dr. Tom Woodward. This is Nick Shalna, your host, and today we are going to be talking about three things that Jesus himself said about the resurrection on earth during his His earthly ministry. Uh, and before we do that, I wanted to let you know that we are going to be starting a new series, basically a series on science and Christianity, and we are going to be calling it The Ridiculousness of Darwinism. Um, So anything you've heard about Darwinism, we're going to try our best to cover. We're going to tell you pretty directly why it isn't true, both from a theistic standpoint and from a scientific standpoint. We're going to focus on both of those things, and it's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to bring on some really, really intelligent people, uh, some top scientists. In fact, we're going to have David Berlinski, among a number of others. So this is just going to be an awesome series, and it's a really good series to share with your friends and family, because most people know what the theory of evolution is, um, they know what Darwinism is, and they've been impacted by it in some way, shape, or form. So uh, we're looking forward to that. And as we wrap up the Resurrection series, um, go back and check out our interview that we just did with Dr. Gary Habermas, the the world's leading expert in the area of the Resurrection. It was a lot of fun. Um, and then the episode we did with Dr. Mike Lacona as well. And we did a whole bunch of topics through this series. Uh, I was just on the Ravel podcast the other day, if you want to check that out. But, you know, one of the things I said was that when we started this Resurrection series, I know there's tons of evidence, but I figured, okay, we can do like three or four episodes or something like that. And it's it's ended up being more than twice that, because once I started really diving into the Resurrection, it's like the evidence is overwhelming, um, I think we're on episode, what, 9 or 10 right now. We're going to be wrapping it up. But um, I feel like we barely scratched the surface. It is overwhelming. Um, in fact, Gary Habermas, who we had uh, interviewed for part of the series... He's already written several books on the resurrection, and he right now is putting out a 1,500-page book that he's working on getting published uh, as we speak. And so it really is like the most incredible event in history, and it has so much significance. Uh, Go back and listen to the first episode we did on this series for why the resurrection matters, but... Uh, it, it will change your life. It is really truly one of the most amazing things that we can possibly study and the evidence just grows more and more the more that we uh, look into it. So I hope I hope you've enjoyed the series as much as we have and as much as I've had. Uh, it, it's just been it's been really cool. It's been a lot of fun. so um, so yeah, share the universe next door with somebody. That's the best way for us to grow. So as I said, today we are going to be talking about three things that Jesus himself said about the resurrection on earth. Um, And the first one that we're going to start with is one of my personal favorites. I use it all the time. You'll you'll probably, uh, if you've listened to some of our episodes in the past, you've probably noticed me referencing this because it's such a powerful uh, chapter of the Bible and it's such a powerful concept that we're going to see here. Uh, But we're first going to look at John chapter 2 and we're specifically going to focus on Uh, verses 18 through 22, Uh, and and what I'm about to read is in response to Jesus clearing out the temple and turning over the money changers' uh, tables, and this is a story that we're probably all familiar with. Many of us, even if we haven't read the Bible, we've probably heard the stories about Jesus flipping the tables, and so on and so forth. Of course, there's a lot of misunderstanding about this passage, as there is with basically any passage taken out of context, but uh, just a little background here. The issue is not necessarily is that there were being sacrifices sold. That's the only way that people could really obtain them. But the issue was that they were being sold in the area, set apart for the Gentiles to worship. In fact, there's two different words uh, used for temple here if you go back to the Greek. And so this was the only area that the Gentiles were permitted to worship. And so their worship was being disrupted by the sale of these animal sacrifices. Uh, Now, you'll also notice if you have studied the Gospels that in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, this event is placed at the beginning of Holy Week before the crucifixion of Christ, or in other words, the Passion. Uh, Now, there are some that suggest that Jesus had cleared out the temple twice, and I I think somebody could make that argument, and I'd be more than willing to listen. I've I've looked into it myself, but uh, I personally agree with many who say that John— the Apostle John had actually placed this event toward the beginning of his gospel, not to change the chronology or when the event took place, but to highlight a specific purpose in this event. Now, personally, I think the purpose he's highlighting is that he goes from the first miracle of Jesus, the water and the wine, and then he kind of mentions, as we're going to see in this text here, the Jews asking him for a miracle, for a sign. So um, I think that he's doing it to highlight the uh, a specific part of the event, not necessarily to, to change the order of it or to say, actually, I disagree with M- Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, I think that this event was supposed to be placed here in Jesus' ministry. I don't think that's what he's doing. I think he's highlighting a specific purpose in this event. Uh, and in fact, there are compositional note or textbooks. Uh, I'm so used to saying notebooks from, <laughs> from when I was a kid at school, we used to use compositional notebooks. I don't know if they still do. Uh, but there are composition textbooks and ancient Greco-Roman biographies from the time period of the Bible, where it is taught that these sort of uh, replacing of stories to highlight their significance is permitted. It's something that was permitted when they were writing ancient biographies. And so the ancient Greco-Roman biographers of the time, and those are the only biographies available because the Jews were not writing biographies, except for uh, Josephus wrote an autobiography. And in um, they were they're very scarce. There there were hardly any from the time. But um, so ancient Greco-Roman biographers would do this because their concern was not necessarily with minute details uh, or always with the chronology of the event, but rather with highlighting or spotlighting the main character. Being written about. Another example we see is um, toward the end of John where Mary Magdalene is at the tomb, but nowhere does it say only Mary Magdalene went. I think that John is just highlighting Mary Magdalene, and in fact, I think this can be proven because later in that chapter it says the women, which is plural, so it wasn't only Mary Magdalene at the tomb, of course. but they, they weren't necessarily concerned with the minute details like we would be sometimes today um, or the order of it, but rather they were highlighting or spotlighting, as Dr. Mike Lacona would put it, the main character who was being written about. Uh, and of course, that's not the topic for today. That was just a quick mention. But I would suggest Mike Lacona's book, Why Are There Differences in the Gospels, for more in this area, because it is very interesting. It'll blow your mind, and it will really change the way that you view the Gospels. It is it is really, really helpful to understand the genre of any book you're reading, whether it's law, whether it's history, whether it's Greco Roman biography compared to just uh, biography that we would read today and try to, and try to force onto that ancient writing. Um, and so I, I would highly encourage you to read that. But Jesus rebukes the Jewish people for what they're doing in the temple, for selling these sacrifices where the Gentiles are permitted to worship and he tells them to stop turning his father's house into a market. We all know the story or, or den of thieves uh, as the synoptics would put it. So in John 2:18, if we pick up here, it says the Jews then responded to him, "What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this?" In verse 19, Jesus answered them, "Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in 3 days." They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So the Jews ask for a sign here in order for Jesus to demonstrate his authority. Depending on what was in their heart, there's nothing necessarily wrong with this. Um, In fact, this is the point of Jesus doing miracles and the apostles doing miracles to demonstrate their authority. So anyone could come along claiming to be the Messiah or claiming to be an apostle, which may even happen today in many many cases, Uh, but they demonstrated their God-given authority by performing miracles that were prophesied in the Old Testament. In fact, uh, I live in the Tampa Bay area. And a few years ago, this, this is why it's so memorable to, be, memorable to me, there was this hurricane that when you looked at the map and it was coming, it was literally larger than Florida. Uh, it was absolutely insane. It was called Hurricane Irma. And during Hurricane Irma, um, everybody was basically locked in their houses with no power, and it was pouring rain and, and windy and, and lightning, and uh, many people would show up and they would knock on the door of people's houses, and they would they would claim to be an electrician or so on and so forth, and they'd say, oh yeah, we need to come in and, and turn your power back on. And then when the people walked in, they would pull out a weapon, they'd pull out a gun or a knife and hold them, and they would rob the people's houses. Well, this could have been avoided if they would have said, can you demonstrate that you're an electrician? Can you show us your badge? Can you show us your paperwork or so on and so forth? Well, this is what Uh, Jesus did. And this is what the apostles did when they performed miracles. They were showing their badge. They were saying, no, I'm not just some crazy person uh, claiming to be an apostle or claiming to be the Messiah. I am the real deal. Here's why. And they would do miracles in order to to demonstrate this. So uh, the sign Jesus offers here is one that will come later. He says, destroy this temple in three days and I will raise it up again. Now, notice Jesus doesn't simply say just that God will raise his body up again. He claims to have the authority to be able to raise himself from the dead. So he's claiming the authority to be able to raise himself up. He says, I will raise this temple in three days. Now, the Jews and especially the Pharisees uh, who believed in a bodily resurrection would have immediately understood the point that he was making. Uh, in fact, we've talked a little bit about this through this series, but the Apostle Paul is a Pharisee, and he actually never necessarily left his, uh, his position as a Pharisee behind, so to speak. Of course, he wouldn't, have been, uh, he wouldn't have been a part of the Sanhedrin or so on and so forth, but he still considered himself a Pharisee, just a true Pharisee, one who had found the true God who was following Christ— I mean, so the Pharisees believed in a bodily resurrection and they would have immediately understood what Jesus was trying to say. And what he was trying to say is that he had the authority of God. In other words, he is equal with God. In other words, he is God, because obviously only God is equal with God. So Jesus here makes a claim to deity that he will raise himself up from the dead and that he is the true temple that is being violated here. And so he's claiming the authority to be God. And this was very quickly understood. Now, if we jump to uh, the next passage here, this is from John chapter 11. Um, now, the the main focus we're going to put here is that Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. But we're going to zoom out a little bit um, so we can look at a little bit more of the context in this chapter. Again, this is John chapter 11. I'm reading from the... NIV here. I think it's a very good translation, and it's it's one of the easiest to read when you're just listening over radio or over a podcast. Uh, But in John chapter 11, I'm gonna pick up at I'm gonna skim through a little bit, but I'm gonna pick up at verse 17. It says, "On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother." When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Now, let me just pause here for a second. So not only is Lazarus dead, and not only is his family there, but there are many other people coming to town uh, to weep and to mourn with their family, much like they would today at the loss of a loved one. So verse 1, we pick up, and it says, "'Lord,' Martha says to Jesus, "'if you had been here, my brother would not have died. "'But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask.'" Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day, which of course is not what Jesus meant. But this actually, it is kind of cool because I think Martha is demonstrating her faith here. Clearly, she believed that Jesus is one with the Father and he'd have whatever he asked as he taught them. Uh, Clearly, she believed in the physical resurrection and the judgment on the last last day. So he picks up in verse 25, Uh, Jesus said to her, I am... The resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Now, this is one of seven uh, of Jesus' I am statements in the book of John. Uh, We'll probably, we've probably done an episode about that in the past, actually, if you go back and look, but uh, we'll definitely cover that again in a little more detail. Jesus makes seven different I am statements, which is, of course, the most powerful way that he could reveal that he is God. That's the same way that uh, God had revealed himself to Moses. And so Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And she says, yes, Lord, she replied, I believe that you are the Messiah, the son of God, who has come into the world. Um, and now I'm going to skip down a little bit. Of course, we all know the part where Jesus wept. Very often that's turned into, um, I guess, kind of a joke. It's taken kind of lightly. And, and, and this is something that just bothers me a little bit when people say, oh, I know a Bible verse. Jesus wept. Ha ha ha. And it's like, okay, you know, it's the shortest verse in the Bible. Um but there really is so much to this and it's something that we shouldn't take lightly. It's kind of like you know putting Jesus on a t-shirt. It's like, I don't, I don't think that's what he wants us to do. Um, and so verse 35 when Jesus it says Jesus wept, that's a very a very deep verse. I mean, this is God who created Lazarus, who knows everything about Lazarus, who knows when he would live, when he would die, when he would raise. and this man, this God man Jesus is crying at the death of his friend. And now right after verse 35, when, when it says Jesus wept, we pick up and it says, Then the Jews said, See how we loved him. But some of the men said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? And whether they're act- asking this in a contemptuous way or whether they're just mourning, and uh, we don't know. No, the scripture doesn't tell us that. But in verse 38, it says, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor for he has been there for four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? So we see this story where people are mourning, families coming to town to see this, and so many people would have witnessed this. And Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead by his own authority um, as God, as one with the Father, as we see in John chapter 5. And that's a very helpful chapter, by the way, for understanding the book of John and the character of Jesus. But we both see, number one, the reason for this happening to glorify God. That's what verse 40 tells us. And number two, Jesus claims here that he is the resurrection and the life, that he is the one responsible for this. He is the one with the authority to raise from the dead, and he's the one who will raise us from the dead. Um, and so notice that Martha says, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. Now, what's interesting, and this is kind of just, I guess, nitpicking, but The fact is, Jesus was there because God is omnipresent. God is everywhere at one time. That's, of course, one of the attributes we believe about God, that he was, in fact, there, even though, in in a certain sense, even though they didn't know he was there. So Jesus is omnipresent. Uh, And that statement follows Martha's statement that the resurrection would be on the last day. And, of course, um, Jesus doesn't rebuke her faith here, but he says, no, I am the resurrection. So he is the source of both. He is the source of life and death. He is the source of the resurrection, and he is the one with the authority to do this. I am the resurrection. So he's claiming divine nature by saying he is the life. He doesn't just say he has a life, but he says, I am the life. So he's claiming divine nature here. um, And we experience the resurrection life because Christ did. That's one of the gifts that we get, and that's one of the things we're trying to Uh, I guess, emphasized throughout this resurrection series, defending the resurrection is that we are the recipients of this Christ raised so that we could raise so that we could come with him um, and be brought to glory and be in the presence of God forever. So Jesus demonstrates that he is the resurrection. He is the life. And he demonstrates this and brings glory to God by raising Lazarus from the dead. And he asks, do you believe this? Now that's a question that we shouldn't just skip over This is a question that we all have to ask ourselves. Do we really believe this is true? Do we believe that Jesus has the ability to pay for our sins and to raise us from the dead, that he alone has that authority? Now, for the last verse of what Jesus said, and by the way, this is not an extensive list. I just picked the three that I find to be the most powerful and that I would like to start with. Um, I would really like to do a maybe an episode down the road on everything Jesus had ever said on the resurrection on earth, uh, which would be really cool. But for now, these are the main three we're going to focus on. And the third one is from Luke uh, 9.22. And Jesus says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, uh, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now, this is in the same chapter uh, where we see... Peter saying, you are the Messiah, when Jesus says, who do you say I am? <clears throat> and it's followed by the transfiguration. Now, I wanted to quickly read, because C.S. Lewis had done a—this uh, isn't a commentary on the book of Luke, but he had commented on this passage because of a writing by Rudolf Boltman, who you've also heard us talk about. He was a liberal theologian. Um, and so Lewis commenting on this passage says, here from Boltman's theology of the New Testament is another— observe in what unassimilated fashion the prediction of the parousia follows upon the prediction of the passion. Now, parousia is just a word that means second coming. And of course, the passion is, you know, what would happen to Jesus, that he would suffer many things and be killed. And so, Boltman makes the charge um, that it's, it's unassimilated. It's an un- unassimilated fashion that the prediction of the parousia or the second coming... <clears throat> follows upon the prediction of the Passion. What can he mean, Lewis says, unassimilated? Bowman believes that prediction of the parousia are older than those of the Passion. He therefore wants to believe, and no doubt does believe, that when they occur in the same passage, some discrepancy or unassimilation must be perceptible between them. But surely he foists this on the text with shocking lack of perception. Peter has confessed Jesus to be the Anointed One. That flash of glory is hardly over before the dark prophecy begins that the son of man must suffer and die. Then this contrast is repeated. Peter, raised for a moment by his confession, makes his false step. The crushing rebuff, get thee behind me, follows. Then across that momentary ruin, which Peter, as so often, becomes, the voice of the master turning to the crowd generalizes the moral. All his followers must take up the cross. This avoidance of suffering, this self-preservation, is not what life is really about. Then, more definitely still, the summons to martyrdom. You must stand to your tackling. If you disown Christ here and now, he will disown you later. Logically, emotionally, imaginatively, the sequence is perfect. And this is my favorite line of this whole thing. Only a Boltman could think otherwise. So that's kind of CSU. Um I would say anger slash uh, sarcasm slash, at the same time, pointing out the beautiful unfolding of this passage and how God designed it to be such a wonderful thing. You couldn't have imagined it any better. You can't feel it any better. Um, You can't logically think of the sequence any better. It's just perfect. The way that God structures this chapter, Luke chapter 9, is just perfect. But so Jesus tells his uh, apostles that the Son of man would have to suffer many things. He would be rejected by the people who are supposed to understand him the best, the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And he would be killed, but then raised to life on the third day, therefore predicting the resurrection yet another time. And again, this is not an exhaustive list. These are just a few, the three that I wanted to start with here Um but what a wonderful chapter Luke chapter 9 is, and, and what a wonderful concept that our Savior had predicted, prophesied, so many times that he would raise from the dead, and he fulfilled um, the fact that this would happen. Now, before we uh, close this episode and before we close the, I guess, the series here, I mean, of course, we're going to touch on this later, but this will be the last of the resurrection series for now, as we start our ridiculous, Ridiculousness of Darwinism series, Which is going to be a lot of fun. Make sure you come back for that. Um, I just wanted to answer a quick question or a quick objection that we had um, heard from a listener. And basically it was, uh, why does it say Jesus died on the third day if three full days didn't pass? Um, There are a few different answers for this. One of them, now this isn't my personal view, but there are some Messianic Jewish people who believed he was actually crucified on Thursday. Now, as I said, I don't hold this view because I haven't seen enough evidence for it, though I, I I would like to look more into it at some point. But I think that that really the right way to look at it is that we shouldn't overthink it. Um, this is how they counted days back then. It wasn't meant to be some technical, make sure you count three 24-hour periods and then I'm going to raise from the dead. That wasn't Jesus' point here, is that he was going to be killed. He was going to be dead for three days, which was Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then he rose uh, early Sunday morning, according to all of the accounts of the <clears throat> of the resurrection narrative, and so um, I, I would just encourage you not to overthink this. This is something that uh, is such a minute thing, but it's really just the Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, or three days. Uh, and and as we had said, we're still giving out the book, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus by Gary Habermas and Mike Lacona. Uh If you have a question about the resurrection, send it to information at apologetics.org. And we've also added to apologetics.org a way for you to fill out uh, a form to possibly win this book. And so go ahead and do that. That's apologetics.org. And if you're listening over radio, make sure you subscribe to the Universe Next Door podcast. You're going to find a lot of uh, content that's not there on the radio because we only have so much time on the radio where we're on the podcast all the time. So subscribe to the Universe Next Door podcast. Well, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you back here next time on the Universe Next Door.